When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, part three of my continuing series on the deep state and how its long tentacles extend into nearly every significant historical event of the 20th century, including the Treaty of Versailles at the conclusion of World War I. They didn't even hear of Adolf Hitler in 1919. They didn't know what a Nazi was, but they knew that if they took the middle class and destroyed it, that something would would arise to create a a nationalistic fervor because Germany was so nationalistic. Uh, They knew that if they put the middle class into prison, so to speak, that they would rise up. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet, patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Yes, we made it, and I hope you're doing well. Steve Harris, the author of America's Secret History, is back with another installment in our ongoing series. Today, the deep state's role in fomenting World War II by guaranteeing the rise of a nationalist fervor in Germany at the conclusion of World War I. Also, the role of the deep state in conjunction with the Federal Reserve in creating the necessary conditions leading to the stock market crash of 1929 and the ensuing Great Depression. Steve Harris, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Hi, Richard. Great to be back. I'd like to begin today's discussion by talking about the Treaty of Versailles and following months of negotiations between various heads of state and diplomats at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, World War I was formally concluded. So the Treaty of Versailles required Germany to disarm, obviously. They had to make territorial concessions, give up land. They had to pay reparations. And they had to accept responsibility for having caused all the loss and damage during the war. Now, some felt these terms were overly harsh. Others were critical that the terms were too lenient. And many would argue that the terms imposed by the treaty perhaps created the conditions that would lead to the unrest in Germany and the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, which seemingly the exact opposite of the intentions of those involved in the treaty's creation. Or were they? Was, in fact, the deep state involved in the negotiations? 
And were they, in fact, trying to create the conditions for a Second World War? Sure. Well, first of all, let's not forget that uh, what we discussed in, in a previous uh, interview, the uh, foundations, the Carnegie Foundation, uh, Norman Dodd, who um, headed up the 1953 uh, House of Representatives uh, Dodd Committee on the foundations, um, found out that, uh, that in the 1911 Carnegie Foundation minutes, that they had discussed what is more effective in changing a people than anything. And they came back about a year later, this think, this think tank came back about a year later and said that war is the only way to change people. And so it wasn't surprising that because World War I did absolutely nothing for the people of the United States, um, that we entered it. It didn't protect our sovereignty. And although the 1920s turned out to be a period of prosperity, it didn't improve America's lot in life. But it did produce 21,000 new American millionaires, and the industrialists became even wealthier by supplying the Allies with necessary war goods and loans, and ultimately the U.S. war machine. And at the end of the war, our allies in Europe were so depleted by the war's end that their gold reserves and the industrial capacity, their industrial capacity, were now largely dependent on us, the United States, which controlled, you know, we controlled almost all of it. As always, war has fed the nation's wealth and power. And it, besides maiming and killing thousands, at least thousands of Americans, probably millions of worldwide. And so why wouldn't the wealth and power seekers in America, the deep state, not want another one? And that's what led into World War One. excuse me, World War Two, via the um, Treaty of Versailles. I've always looked at World War One as a family squabble because you had King George V, you had Tsar Nicholas II, you had Kaiser Wilhelm, were all cousins. They grew up together. They played together as children. And now they're all at war. <laughs> well, you know, the assassination in 1914, the prince... Um, Archduke Ferdinand. Austria and Hungary. That's right. Thank you. Set uh, Austria and Hungary uh, off on war and all the treaties that each country had uh, entered all the countries, the other countries into war. And Germany, of course, was one of them. Germany had a treaty with Austria that if Austria was attacked, Germany would come to its aid. And that's how Germany got into the war. They weren't anti-American. They weren't anti-ally, France, England, etc. They They just simply had a treaty uh, with one of the countries that uh, uh, started a war. And that's how Germany got into the war. And it is true that Germany was the primary uh, enemy of the United States, or of the allies, England and France, in World War I. That is true. But they were not anti-American, the Germans. Uh, this isn't World War II with Adolf Hitler. The Germans simply were in the war because of a treaty. I wanted to, to talk about, to jump ahead to the end of the war and the Treaty of Versailles. There was something called the War Guilt Clause. This was Article 231 of the treaty in which the Allied powers basically demanded from Germany war reparations, but the amount, something like 132 billion gold marks, or that's around 31 and a half billion dollars US by today's standards, which is just a crushing amount. It was it was massive. It, it, the Treaty of Versailles simply destroyed the German middle class. And that's what that's what its purpose was. Germany was was not even allowed at the peace tables, very similar to the Spanish-American War. 
where we went in to defeat the Spaniards to free Cuba, and yet Cuba was not allowed at the peace table. Well, the same thing in, in, in World War I with the Treaty of Versailles. Germany did not attend, because they were not allowed to, the peace table. The treaty was simply a list of demands, and if they weren't met, Germany would be invaded and torn apart. So they had no choice. The United States Senate didn't even recognize the treaty, refusing to ratify it. And the reason was, was that it wasn't a treaty. It was simply every or, or many senators simply saw that it was just a way to put Germany into a horrendous spot. It was not a treaty to end World War One. And as I said before, the German middle class, the, lead, the Treaty of Versailles led the German middle class from the beginning into a, a destructive mode. They were destined for destruction. And that was the purpose of the Treaty of Versailles. And that is what the deep state wanted. They knew that World War I was so productive for what I call the WNP, the, the, the wealth and power. It, as I said, it created 21,000 new American millionaires. It fed the industrialists, untold millions at the time. And so, of course, they wanted another war. And they saw the, the, the deep state with all their think tanks and the foundations saw that the way to do it was through Germany. Because Germany was so nationalistic, uh, they knew that if they put the middle class into prison, so to speak, that they would rise up. And that's what the purpose was to build up to. They, they didn't even hear of Adolf Hitler in 1919. They didn't know what a Nazi was, but they knew that if they took the middle class and destroyed it, that something would, would arise to create a, a nationalistic fervor to bring Germany into a anti-American, anti-ally class. And that's what they did. And they were right. So that by the 1920s you had hyperinflation because i guess the only way they could continue to pay off their debt was to print money in germany the weimar republic by this time printing more and more money that caused inflation so then you had a loaf of bread which cost something like 250 marks in in january of 1923 had risen to 200,000 million marks by November of 1923. I mean, that's just, that's just you can, I can't even wrap my head around that. 250 marks in January for a loaf of bread, 200,000 million marks by November of 23. As usual, your, your, your knowledge astounds me. Yes. Um, and by the time the late 20s, early 30s came along, the German people, uh, like the American people in, in 2014, 2015, were just fed up with the government. They were fed up with what they were uh, faced with. And um, the German people just rallied around uh, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. Hitler blamed the, uh, the military and the leaders in 1919 for, for accepting the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, they blamed the Jews, which was a, a, an extremely effective to, uh, for the Nazis to get the, the German middle class into, uh, into fold. And they did it, uh, he was a genius. You know, no matter what you want to say about Adolf Hitler, he was a genius. And um, the deep state here in the United States was right on target. They knew that uh, something would develop taking that German middle class and uh, they were right. Who were the deep state players that were behind the Treaty of Versailles? How did they influence, for example, the war reparations? How were they able to influence? Were they on the uh, behind the American negotiating side? How did they do that? I certainly can't tell you how it, how, how it was done. 
Um, I wasn't within the foundations, which, as far as I'm concerned, uh, uh, America's secret history proves is is the organizational structure of the deep state. Uh, but the control that they had, that they had and have over the State Department, uh, over the government, and, and molding it, melding it into what they want, was certainly prevalent in, in 1919. The United States, Great Britain, and France knew what they had to do. Uh, it's it's very similar to to the 2003 Tony Blair uh, backing George W. Bush uh, in the invasion of Iraq. How did Tony Blair know? Well, the deep state controls everything in the background. Uh, there's no doubt about it. It's uh, uh, read America's Secret History, and you can you can just see it in the timeline how the control is is there. So I, you know, Richard, I can't tell you how they did it, but they control the State Department, they control the government, and they have since um, uh, at least the late 1800s. So let's talk about the stock market crash of 1929. Of course, Germany was that was kind of a double whammy. They they were already in dire straits, uh, as we discussed, hyperinflation. Contrast with the United States and the 1920s was an incredible boom period. Their their GDP that decade went up something like 42 percent. Uh, incomes rose fifteen hundred dollars per 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 household. It was the Roaring Twenties, as they called it. But Germany, that was just more than they could withstand the stock market crash of twenty nine. Uh, but in the United States, the twenties were a, a tremendous boom period. So the idea that the the deep state uh, and the Federal Reserve orchestrated the stock market crash of 29, which led to the Great Depression. Do you have any thoughts on how that was accomplished? Well, the Federal Reserve was established in, in 1913 to prevent another 1907 uh, recession. The 1907 recession was terrible. It was very similar to the 2008 recession. And so the way that the uh, that the deep state got it through the uh, House of Representatives and the Senate was to say that this is this Federal Reserve will protect the country against another 1907 recession. And uh, just 16 years later, 1913, the Federal Reserve Act, 1929, the crash of, uh, uh, of the stock market. Just so in 16 years, the Federal Reserve that was uh, uh, instigated to initiate it to uh, protect against another 1907 recession allowed uh, the stock market to crash for the first time in, in America's history. And one of the biggest things that the Federal Reserve allowed uh, in the 20s, the 1920s, by the way, was very similar to the 1990s of the United States economy in, in both decades, uh, was just uh, staggering. I mean, wonderful. I mean, it was just the, the stock market, the, the economy was just magnificent. And one of the ways that the Federal Reserve caused that to happen and in reverse caused this 29 stock market uh, crash was that they allowed individuals to buy stocks at 10% of their worth. Margin on so margin. So let's take yeah. Apple today. Let's look on, yes, let's say, you know, today, if you want to buy a, a share of Apple, to be perfectly honest, I don't know what Apple is in, but let, let, let's just say it's a $200 a share. Today, if, if you want to buy a, a one share of Apple, you have to pay $200. Back in 1926, 27, 28, you could buy a share of Apple, if Apple existed at the time, for $20 and pay off the rest, the, the, the $180 that, that is remaining, on your profits. And, and that's what spurred the huge economic uh, wonderment 
in in the late twenties. I, I mean, the United States economy was was just blowing out of out of whack, as it was in nineteen ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine with Amazon and and. Right. And they were Yahoo, over, yeah, stocks know, were overvalued. Um, the other thing that also you mentioned, you know, yeah. ordinary people buying stocks on margin and, and it now all of a sudden became the thing that everybody, it was a huge trend. Teachers and and Dude. laborers, laborers now for the first time were getting in on, on the action and buying stocks. So everybody was in on it. But also even the banks were buying on margin and they were using depositors' money. They were borrowing from their own depositors to, exactly. buy, to buy on margin. You just covered the next point I was going to make. Yes. And uh, the Glass-Steagall Act of, I believe it was 1933, that that uh, that was part of Roosevelt's New Deal, prevented banks from doing that, that exact same thing. And of course, buying on margin was stopped also. But that didn't prevent the stock market crash of 1929. And, and that sent the United States and the world, including Germany, of course, into uh, a staggering place. A place that the United States would have been in in 2009 and 2010 if it wasn't for the Federal Reserve uh, quantitative easing, where the, uh, the Federal Reserve bought treasuries worth over a billion dollars every year from 2009 to 2011. If the United States had done that in 1931 and 32 and 33, there would not have been a Great Depression. And that's what America's secret history brings out. Because all money is created out of nothing. But without money, trade ends. And so when you remove money or you reduce it, the results are catastrophic, which is what happened in 19, well, 1930, 1931, a year or two after the stock market crashed. There was no money in this country, in the world. Right, the Fed's the exact raised, same infrastructure. They raised interest rates. Say that again, Richard. I'm sorry. Yeah, so the the Fed essentially they tightened the money supply by tight by raising interest rates. I'm not, you know, I'm not an economist, so I'm not sure that's what happened in 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 1930, 31. No, I think it was before but the stock the market crash. Yeah, they did it in the, the late 20s, yes. I think, and that it had kind of a delaying effect. Yes, exactly. That's a, that's exactly correct. Yes, but the exact same infrastructure that existed in the prosperous 20s was in existence in the 30s. The same workforce, I mean, people were there. Farmland was fertile, the same farmland. Our highly efficient transportation system was still there. We had a massive communication network for the 1930s at least. It was all there. Americans lacked only one thing after the crash of 1929, money. Hmm. An adequate supply of money. And people and companies didn't have money to buy the debts that they were into in the banks and their, their, their mortgages, et cetera. And so people needed money, just like in 2008, 2009. That was, the, that was the whole thing in the 2008 Barack Obama, John McCain presidential campaign, easing. Quantitative easing, yes. Bailing out, bailing out, bailing the people. And so Congress had given away its, its power to create currency illegally in the 1913 Federal Reserve Act. And so they couldn't create currency, but the Federal Reserve and Franklin Delano Roosevelt could have. And that is the key that America's secret history points out. This was America's depression. It was all caused by just a shortage of money. And it could have been cured by immediately creating money like we did in 2009. 
Right. Even in, in 2009, the Federal Reserve every month. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say in in the early 2000s, Ben Bernanke, who was at that time, he was uh, one of the uh, the governors on the board of the, the Federal Reserve, admitted that it was the Federal Reserve, well, he called it a mistake, but he laid the blame clearly on the shoulders of the Federal Reserve for the stock market crash of 29. But what you're saying is, nah, that was no mistake. They, they deliberately dried up the money supply in order to create a depression following the crash. Absolutely. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a banker. That's where he came from, the banks. He knew darn well that that the only thing that the people of the United States needed was money, that the banks needed money, people needed money, industry needed money, and the Federal Reserve had the power, just like they did in 2009. They had the power in 1932-33 in, in to produce money. All they had to do was to create a March of 2020 stimulus. That's all they had to do. And Roosevelt knew it. The Federal Reserve knew it. But they had a different, in, in 2009, they wanted to protect the citizens. In 1933, they didn't because they had a huge thing to do. And that was to increase the power of the federal government. Because up until that time, it was really the states that controlled what was going on in the United States. But the deep state needs the federal government to control almost everything. And the new uh, Roosevelt's New Deal increased the federal government's control over the people exponentially. I mean, it, it, it was night and day from what it was in the 20s. And it was night and day in, in 2001 when George W. Bush created the Patriot Act, which put even more control over the American people. And now with the pandemic and all the controls that have been instigated since then, the, the federal government controls almost everything in this country. The control over the American people have, has, has never been greater. Well, in the 1930s, the deep state wanted the beginning of the federal government to control the citizenry. And that's what Roosevelt did with his New Deal. And, but in addition to that, they could have, but it would have been too easy for the, it, it would have hindered the control of the government. And so they did not want to bail out industry or people. They wanted the people to suffer so that they could so that they could control them even more. And that is that is what the the deep state that was the motives of the deep state during the 30s, not to bail out, but to control, but to, to begin the control. But the effect of the stock market crash was once and, and it took, I think, up until about 1954 for the market to regain its previous high from 1929. But also then you had these. I guess you could call them vulture capitalists come in and swoop up stocks and companies at uh, at fire sale prices because the market uh, had crashed and so stocks were pennies on the dollar. Exactly. You know, the, the Vatican in 1929 was paid by the Italian government something like $60 million at that time to establish the Vatican. And that year, as we know, the, the stock market crashed in the United States and worldwide stock markets crashed as well. And by the time World War II came along in just a decade, the Vatican was worth something like $4 billion, if I'm not mistaken. They had invested, they hired brokers here in the United States and they took that roughly $60 million and they parlayed it, parlayed it into something like $4 billion in a decade by doing exactly what you just said. They bought stocks for pennies 
And those stocks after World War II were worth a fortune. And that is exactly what the, the wealthy did. That's the way to, to make your millions is, is, is wait for the stock market to crash and then buy. And, and that's what uh, the Vatican did. That's what many, many other millionaires did. More of my conversation with Steve Harris, the author of America's Secret History, when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Since the mighty Aphrodite and I have been taking ESS-60, the purest form of carbon-60, we're thrilled to tell you we're both sleeping well and pain-free. ESS-60 is raw carbon-60 that's been produced, certified, and guaranteed for safer human consumption. C60 is a mega antioxidant and is known to have 172 times the antioxidant power of vitamin C, 172 times. ESS60 is the carbon 60 formulation used in the 2012 original Paris study that showed ESS60 doubled the lifespan of rats. That's right, doubled their lifespan. I'm so proud to be associated with my good friends at c60evo.com. Their scientists invented the only reactor machine of its kind to produce carbon-60 back in 1991. They've been a top producer and distributor of C60 worldwide ever since. And the demand has been astounding. ESS-60 from C60Evo.com is available in 4, 8, 16, and 32-ounce bottles. Choose from single bottles, monthly subscriptions, or cases of 12 bottles. ESS-60, the purest form of carbon-60 available. Get yours at c60evo.com slash ref slash rs1. c60evo.com slash ref slash rs1. Use the promo code rs1spec, rs1spec, to get 5% off. ESS60 from c60evo.com. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I don't know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Steve Harris, the author of America's Secret History, is here. You mentioned World War II. Let's talk about America's entry into the Second World War. Churchill was desperate to get the United States into the war. A number of attempts to get the Germans to declare war on the United States had failed, and so they turned their direction to Germans' allies in the Pacific, Japan, Imperial Japan. And of course, there's been so much speculation over the years, including in a book by Robert Stinnett, Day of Deceit, The Truth About FDR and Pearl Harbor, who talked about American foreknowledge that Roosevelt knew in advance that Japan was going to attack. What do you divulge in America's secret history about uh, the Pearl Harbor attack in December of 1941? Well, there's, there's no doubt. I, I, I mean, there's just total proof that FDR and his administration knew for several years that the Japanese were going to attack either Pearl Harbor or the Philippines. And as it got closer, they knew that it was going to be Pearl Harbor. And not only did they know, but they also they also caused Japan. They backed Japan into a corner, causing them to have to go to war. On October 16, 1940, 
we restricted all sales of crap, scrap iron and, and sail, effectively cutting off Japan's supplies. And, and they needed that scrap iron and, and steel. On July 26, 1941, just four months before Pearl Harbor, um, in response to Japan occupying French Indochina, we froze all Japanese assets in this country, effectively ending all trade between us, which was a huge hindrance to Japan. Just one week after that, we cut off all oil to Japan. Japan now had access to only maybe 10% of what they needed. Think of the United States only having access to 10% of the oil that we needed. <laughs> We'd go to war in a second. Well, Japan had to. So Roosevelt and the Allies, uh, France and, and, and Great Britain, were already at war. Uh, but including the United States, we forced Japan to attack. And uh, we, we knew that it was going to, uh, to happen. George Morgenstein, a World War II Marine Corps captain and a Chicago Tribu Tribune editor after World War II, uh, wrote a book called Pearl Harbor, the story of the secret war. And he showed not only that Pearl Harbor could have been avoided, but that FDR and the entire administration caused it to happen, just like I just said. Morgan Stern claimed that, it, that the United States conducted a secret war that was waged in the months and even years of Harbor. This was not something that happened overnight. Here's, here's what he says. Four years later, it would become known that the Jap secret code had been cracked many months before Pearl Harbor and that the men in Washington who read the code intercepts had almost as good a knowledge of Japanese plans and intentions as if they had been occupying seats in the war councils of Tokyo. The Roosevelt administration of an American servicemen and their families at Pearl Harbor were in harm's way. They knew that an attack was imminent, yet neither the island nor the base was ever placed on full military alert. Those, those, those 20, I believe it was something like 20, 2,300 people were basically sleeping at sunrise when the Japanese planes attacked and his administration knew that, they didn't know that it was coming off on December 7, 1941, but they knew darn well that it was real close, that it was days and weeks, and they didn't warn those people. And that is something that, that the United States citizens have to know and should know, and yet very- Right, right. There is a, a quote from uh, Rear Admiral Frank Edmund Beatty Jr., and he was, uh, during the uh, Second World War, he was an aide to the Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox, very close to President Roosevelt's inner circle. He said that prior to December 7th, it was evident even to me that we were pushing Japan into a corner. I believe that it was the desire of President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill that we get into the war as they felt the Allies could not win without us and all of our efforts to cause the Germans to declare war on us had failed. The conditions were imposed upon Japan to get out of China, for example, were so severe that we knew the nation would not accept them. We were forcing her so severely that we could have, that we could have known that she would react toward the United States. All, their, all her preparations in a military way, and we knew their overall import pointed that way. Again, that's Rear Admiral Frank Edmund Beatty Jr., who was very close to Roosevelt's inner circle, uh, who said that. The, the other interesting thing is yeah. the, the, uh, the Pacific Fleet, the, US, the Pacific Fleet, which was in Pearl Harbor, and people say, well, why would they, if they wanted to go to war, enter the war, why would they sacrifice their, their Pacific Fleet? Except that the most important part of their Pacific Fleet, 
their their aircraft carriers because this you know this was the new war this was a new era uh, the navy was all about aircraft carriers winning was it was about air superiority and so coincidentally you know there are three aircraft carriers uh what was it the lexington the saratoga i can't remember the third one they were all dispatched on another mission days before the attack so they were spared which is kind of inter- interesting exactly very interesting and let me read you something else by the way which which leads into this leads into that on on january 27 1941 which was like something like 10 months prior to pearl harbor 10 months the united states ambassador to japan the ambassador joseph c grew wrote a memo to his superiors in the state department listen to this a member of the embassy was told by my peruvian colleague that from many quarters including a japanese one he had heard that a surprise 10 months before he had heard that a surprise mass attack on pearl harbor was planned was planned by the japanese military forces in case of trouble between Japan and the United States. The attack would involve the use of all the Japanese military forces. My colleague said that he was prompted to pass this on because it had come to him from many sources, although the plan seemed fantastic. Now let's not forget now that that Joseph C. Grew, the the United States ambassador to Japan, he wasn't a clerk sitting in an FBI office like the so-called 9-11 uh, a clerk who a couple of weeks before 9-11 had some proof that there was going to be an attack. This was the representative selected by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to represent the United States of America in one of the world's powerhouses at that time. And he sent a memo to the State Department saying that he felt that there was a mass attack, that there was a possible mass attack coming to Pearl Harbor. And we did not have Pearl Harbor on alert. That is just, I mean, it's its tantamount to treason for the FDR administration. I'm wondering whether one could make an argument that it was a necessary evil in that there were reports that the Germans were working on an atom bomb uh, and that it, had the United States not gotten into the war, at that time, they may they might not have been able to prevent Germany from developing uh, nuclear weapons. Imagine Nazi Germany with nuclear bombs strapped on those V two rockets, raining down on England and and maybe even America. That it was that it was a, a bargain with the devil. It was a necessary evil. It had to be done because the American public was dead set against the war. Roosevelt had campaigned against getting into the war. But then when they realized the Germans were developing the bomb, they had no other choice. What are your thoughts? Well, what you're talking about is casualties of war. And let me argue this way. 9-11, which we'll talk about in the future. Two planes crashed into two tower, two twin towers in the, of the World Trade Centers uh, with ensuing fires, etc. Did they have to uh, – uh, America's secret history make – the case, the scientific case, that the twin towers were brought down by controlled demolition, that that was the only way that the controlled towers, that the towers could have been brought down. If the United States, if America's secret history is correct, had just left those two uh, planes up there with fires 
and the people on the two commercial airliners dead and maybe 100 or 200 uh, people in the World Trade Center is dead. Could the United States really have gone in and invaded Afghanistan and two years later Iraq based on that? No, they wanted to bring the towers down to really make a statement that this is the, the totalitarian, the, the, the to, to, total warlike nature of the terrorists. Well, in 1941, if it was just simply a military attack on a military base that was on alert, yes, we would have gone to war with Japan. It would not have been a day of infamy. It would have been like the 1861 Fort Sumter attack by the Confederate Army on the Union. It was an act of war, and the North and South went to war. December 7, 1941, if it was just a military attack, we simply would have gone to war, but it would not have been a day of infamy. Because the Twin Towers went down, it wasn't called a day of infamy, but that's what it was. It brought a finality to a situation that brought total fear and disgust to the American people. A military attack on a military base that was prepared would have been an act of war, but it wouldn't have been fear and mass terror. We're going to leave it there, and uh, we'll pick it up next time. No doubt we'll uh, we'll get into the assassination of, uh, of JFK and brothers Bobby and, of course, MLK. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Beautiful. Thank you, Richard. It was a pleasure. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash with a few words about an upcoming episode. That time of the week to welcome back Colleen Forgas, our nutritional therapist and the manager at our Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Hello once again, Colleen. Hi, Richard. I'm feeling electrified today. <laughs> Fantastic. I was going to ask you about that. Every time I take my boys out, to, they, they play tennis, they play hockey, we go skating, skiing. They're always they're always bothering me for a sports drink. They're A, they're expensive, and B, I don't even know what's in those things. Anything on the Full Script Dispensary to replace these sports drinks? Yes, Richard. A product called 40,000 Volts by Trace Minerals Research. It's an electrolyte concentrate that you can add to your own beverage. So you can just put it in water and rather than purchasing something that we don't know what it's, you know, all the chemicals that are in those common sports drinks, this will allow you to make your own. So it's really great in relieving muscle cramps, including nighttime leg cramps that people often get. And for anyone that might have a reverse osmosis water system, it helps to put back some of the minerals that those systems remove from the water. Oh, that's a great idea. So it comes in a powder, 40,000 volts. That's right. Fantastic. Thanks again, Colleen. Thank you, Richard. To get your 40,000 volts, go to strangeplanet.ca. Then click on the full script dispensary button. All orders receive 10% off and orders of $50 or more ship absolutely free. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Coming up next time, part one of a two-part conversation with media scientist Nelson Thal on Marshall McLuhan and his dangerous ideas. People don't really fully understand the laws of media just like they don't understand the laws of relativity. They know Einstein is famous, but if you really sat them down and asked them to write a couple of paragraphs on it, they'd be lost. And I think the same is true with McLuhan. He was a media scientist. His laws of media have just been uh, proven practically. 
I've worked as a, went out into the consulting world and put his theories to a test, his laws, let's call them, and they work. And so he is uh, certainly uh, one of the major thinkers of the 20th century. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 